Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Hello and welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm your host, Riley Risto, and it is my great pleasure to welcome back our podcast founder and now permanent super sub... (laughs) Shiloh Logan. Welcome back, Shiloh. Yeah, thanks. It's good to be back. Kind of had a uh, a short-term uh, exit from, from Christopher, who's experiencing a little bit of, of pain and, and is uh, just didn't feel up to it. So we are very happy to bring you back. And today we're going to be discussing the topic of loving kindness. And while that sounds like just kind of a you know, a very a very nice sentiment or whatever, but it's actually kind of a specific reference. In in Buddhism, one of the main goals of Buddhism is this idea of benevolence. And benevolence, another way to say that, is is hoping the best for other people. And so the way that we we act act on that feeling towards others is to exercise this idea of loving kindness. And so one of the ways that a Buddhist would do it, they they might try to manifest that in a meditation. It's something that I myself do sometimes. So we're going to talk about this subject of loving kindness, which offers us offers a perspective of how we might be benevolent towards our fellow human beings and ourselves. So to start this off, Shiloh, do you have any initial feelings or thoughts about this topic? I think it was Mother Teresa who said something to the effect of that everybody wants to go out and change the world, but very few people are very concerned about changing themselves. And there becomes this recognition that the difficulty we have of loving others is usually a reflection of our difficulty in loving ourselves. And and so that's really where it comes down to. And I don't remember where I heard it last, but I've heard it several times in that the two great commandments of loving God with all of our heart, might, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself, that the reason why we put it in that order is not necessarily even that they are distinct or separate things, but that it's, most, it's, it's not a metaphysical distinction, it's an epistemic one. It's that our awareness into our own self-love is usually through the filter of loving God and having a returned experience of love where we were not expecting that to be the case, where we, we were in a moment of expecting one thing and that the love that we experienced disarmed us enough that it shook our temporal view of what we expected enough for us to then take that into ourselves to to then basically be okay and and love ourselves and from that ability to then accept and love ourselves what richard rohr calls forgiving reality right you know we have this idea for reality being what it is and when we have these expectations and then god's love breaks through the cracks of our expectations and it's in those moments when we we begin to experience this type of self-love. It's not selfishness, right? That's not what we're getting at. But this type of self-love that because we the, the awareness of this came about because of God, 
and our experience to God. And then it's the love that we have for ourselves that then that starts pouring over into the world. So the reason I bring that up is this kind of concept of kindness. I don't know anyone who would ever say not to be kind. I mean, that's kind of, it's a very fundamental ethic, right, of, of kindness. Nice, I've heard criticisms against nice, but kindness on the other hand. But then it becomes a very complicated word because what does that even mean as a practical use, as a matter of utility? And, and so I think there's a lot of really great discussion in being able to find out kind of more of at a meta level what kindness is so that we can start focusing on the underlying assumptions that we have of ourselves. And what I found from that discussion of dealing with the underlying meta, that meta discussion is that it automatically pours out into our life to where sometimes, you know, we, we can have this analytical conversation about different situations. And if you're in this particular situation, you want to act this way. And it kind of sets up situational ethics. And, and I've always laughed at situational ethics because at that point I'm, I, I laugh and I'm like, when am I ever going to be the, the person who's switching the train tracks and I get to decide whether or not one person dies or the whole train track dies, right? And so it's, it's like, one hypothetical I, though. <laughs> <laughs> when am I ever going to be in that situation? So we set up all these hypotheticals and, and I get the reason why we do that because it has implications into other theories of ethics. But when I'm making decisions in my real life, I don't stop to think, okay, am I going to use utilitarianism here? Or am I going to use a different ethical model here? Like, how am I going to process this through? And, and I, I, that's not my life. But when I spend the time beforehand into having these kinds of conversation as to the assumptions that I have of the world, the assumptions I have of God, and then the experiences that I have with God that disrupt those expectations— that conversation, for me at least, brings me in into an awareness that now when I come into the world and become present with the world, then it's, just, it's a natural emanation of those experiences that, uh, that have already been disruptive in kind of the analytical way that I thought the world was. Uh, is it fair to say, as a summary, sort of what you're saying there is that concepts in themselves and our understanding of concepts, whether it be kindness, niceness, love, whatever— those aren't transformational, but experiencing kindness in yourself is what allows that cup to runneth over, so to speak. Like at that point, it's a transformational experience. You have experienced the love of God and applying that at that point is something that you have the desire to do because your, your heart has been changed by an experience with kindness or with God. Yeah, I think it's a really great way to summarize that. <laughs> Well, I wasn't trying to take away from anything you said. I thought no, the, I was the listening explication to what you said. was great. <laughs> I was listening to what you just said. I'm like, oh, yeah, I could have said that in two sentences. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I really appreciated you going into the first two great commandments because I really, I, I've set up for myself a sort of hierarchy of importance in terms of where I put my focus in my life and what I ascribe truth to when I'm reading scriptures or studying or learning concepts. And at the very top of this pyramid of importance are the two great commandments. In fact, Christ said the same thing. He said, upon these two hang all the law and the prophets. So we can really beat ourselves up or, or put ourselves into a, a long-term detailed study about all of the, you know, whether it's the 630 laws in the law of Moses or whether it's our own set of laws in Doctrine of Covenants or whatever. We can spend a lot of time trying to memorize, reconcile, and act upon all those various laws and it will mean nothing if we've skipped the two great ones. So I put a lot of my focus on, on the top of that pyramid. 
And then cascading down from that, I might go to the most important teachings of Jesus contained in the Sermon on the Mount. And maybe from there, I go to kind of worldwide commandments that are generally accepted across the world um, under the understanding that, okay, if God's going to give those super important teachings to me, he's probably going to give them to all of his children. So you come up against things like don't steal, don't kill, you know, be truthful in your interactions with people, you know, don't commit adultery, don't covet. Those are things that are, you know, they're pretty ubiquitous across the world. And so that would be kind of my next level down the hierarchy and so forth. And I just kind of do that same uh, analysis, I guess. It's not super analytical on every situation, but really that's, I try to put my focus at the top and anything that might, uh, you know, contradict that or cause me to think differently about a God that is all loving, I, I kind of just toss it out. That's that's how I do things. Uh, if it gets if it's brought back into the equation somehow later on as my understanding changes, that's fine. But in the moment, I put the majority of my focus on the top of that pyramid. And what I learned from the first two great commandments is that there is a direct relationship and correlation between God's love for me, my love for myself, my actions and love towards my fellow man, and salvation. That I, There's that... There's a connection for me in all of that, that I'm saved by loving my neighbor. Saved how? You know, you can say it many different ways, but I'm saved by loving my neighbor. Well, how do I love my neighbor? I really don't know. Oh, wait a sec. God loves me. I've experienced that. I know how to apply that love. Oh, wait, God loves me and I've experienced that. So, oh, okay. Now I, now I know what love feels like from God and I can affirm the existence of a loving God. So a lot comes out of just those first two great commandments if we'll put the time into exploring those. Yeah, I, I liked what you said uh, earlier on when you said about transformation and about kind of analytical life versus that transformational experiential life. Um, there's an interesting relationship here between, and we're kind of talking around it that, that I see is this relationship between law and love. And and there's a lot of people who have a lot of different opinions about this because how we frame this discussion of love in regards to the two great commandments from from a legal standpoint there's going to want to be a desire to give greater emphasis or a hierarchy to the two commandments and it's going to want to put the first one first and the second one second as if that that hierarchy is an importance and value but my own experience has been that it just, it doesn't really matter which one's which you know, because even when Christ says it, it says the second is likened to the first. And so it's it's as though he's calling us into this this awareness that it doesn't matter which one you start with. And that's why I made that metaphysical versus epistemic distinction, because metaphysically in reality, the, the one is the same as the other. But it's the awareness that we come to it in that the love of God is what usually disrupts us from our our false self-perceptions of things. But in in religion is very popular to be able to place uh, law, to, to use the law to define what love is. And, you know, this is kind of what the Greeks did, right? This is how, why we had the several different concepts of love, and they wanted to categorize love and different types of love. And and I think what you and I are talking about here is, is a different type of conversation in that there's a temptation to want to use the law to be able to define what love is, as opposed to using love to define why the law was given and how the law is to be administered. 
And, and so it's this, it's, it's a primacy issue about whether or not we want to use the law first or love first. And admittedly, I think I've been on the side of law for a lot of my life unwittingly. And what I think the consequence and the fruit of that was, is that I started to live a life where I thought I was living a life of faith, but there were so many things that I thought I was living a life of faith where I was actually living a life of fear. And it was a really jagged pill for me to swallow in my adulthood to recognize that so many of my decisions that I thought were made out of faith were actually made out of fear. And what I mean by that, you know, take for instance, putting money away into the bank, into a savings account. You know, we live in a world of scarcity. Scarcity is a very basic element, an assumption that we make in our life. It's, it's the fundamental assumption of economics. And we go to work every day because we're trying to get a piece of the pie. We're trying to, we're trying to accumulate our kind of share of the scarce resources. And so we want to save away into stockpile for a rainy day what we can possibly shove over into a savings account. And I found in my life that I'd been stocking money over away into a savings account and trying to do that because fundamentally I wasn't living by faith that the motivation by what I was doing was actually rooted more in fear of something bad happening than it was actually living by faith that God would provide. Now, it's interesting is even acting in faith, I, I would still, I still had the same actions. I was still putting money away over into the side. It wasn't the action that was actually the, the deal. It was the heart, the motivation, the actual experience by which I was coming to those actions with, right? And that's what the law kind of based system of thinking did for me was it put me into this realm where I was just following the rules and I was never actually looking at the intent and the heart by which I was doing things. And the minute I actually started to focus at my intent and the desire and the substance by which I was doing the actions, then everything changed for me. And that's when I started to put love above this construct of law. And, and so going back to what you said, Riley, um, is this conversation is much more about what are these experiences that we have with God that bring about this awareness of love? Because that's where we start to break down the temporal legal ex expectations that we are expecting things to happen. And we come into an awareness and a life lived of God's love that disrupted that. And, and the experience then of love, God's love then begins to inform everything else. And, and we see that it doesn't really matter if you love your neighbor, if, if loving your neighbor or loving God came first or second, it's just like they're interchangeable. But it's the awareness that we come to. After the fact, because it really seems to me that even though there may not be an epistemic relationship between the first and second great commandment, there, in, in my experience, there's a chronological relationship between one and the other. Because like you, you're, you're talking about having an experience of love leading to a changed heart within you. And that, that intention comes from having that experience of love, which you then pour forth with others. And so there is a difference in the intention while not necessarily a difference in actions. Two people can do the same service, and yet one comes from a space of, of transformed inner love and peace that they've obtained through and with God, and the other is doing it out of a sense of duty to the law. Oh, man, I got a great story with that. So, so just exactly on that very point, um, I'm so sorry I'm going to use a mission example. And I'm so sorry I'm going to use a mission president example. These are so overdone, but it, it works, works perfectly. On my mission, and I've used this example before because it's just so perfect. Everyone knows, especially for those who've lived in the 90s, um, and maybe even before, I lived in the 90s, so it's especially pointed for the 90s. Um, 
the, there was this huge emphasis on obedience, on just obedience. You, you know, obedience is the first law. That's what breaks everything else possible, right? And so there was this, you can tell there were certain missionaries who were just absolutely obedient because they didn't think they were going to get blessings or be successful unless they were exactly obedient in everything. And so they were very legalistic, very lawful, very dutiful in being exact. They rose at exactly six o'clock. They, they held the exact schedule. They did everything exactly like they were told from beginning to the end because they thought the exactness of the, of the, of the following everything is what brought blessings. And to an, ex- an extent, it did. But when I went on my mission, I had already gone out. To, so I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. I went out with a lot of uh, missionaries before I went on my mission. And, and there were a lot of missionaries who were like that. Then when I got out of my mission, I was kind of expecting that, but it, it blew my mind because uh, here's the story. I can't verify if this is true or not, <laughs> but the story was that when I went to California, so Ventura, California was my mission and I was English speaking. And when I got out there, I was told we had more cars per capita for missionaries than any other mission and that we had fewer accidents per cars than any other mission. Now, maybe, now maybe every mission boasted this, but ours did, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was just whatever. But in this particular case, when I asked my companion, Mike, oh, that's interesting. Why is that? And he said, well, it's because we love president. We love the president and of the mission. I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, you love the mission president. So fewer accidents. And he's like, yeah. And it seemed to make so much sense to him. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. That's stupid. What's the connection? What's the connection? And then I, and then it just happened to be in my apartment. It was with the zone leaders. And so I asked independently, the zone leaders, they were really excited to tell me the statistics of the mission as well. So they told me independently about the car situation. And so I asked them, I'm like, why is it that way? What, you know, is it like training, you know, strictness or like, what are we taught? Like what makes it different? And they're like, well, it's because we love the president. And I'm like, <laughs> like, this is the stupidest correlation. And even as a young 19-year-old missionary, I was like, this makes no sense. And it wasn't until my first moment of actually being in the presence of him and, and of having him look me in the eye and say, Elder Logan, I love you. And to have the mission and, and, and to have uh, president's wife, Sister Clark, come up and give me a big hug and just say, I love you, Elder Logan. And the sincerity of that just poured into my soul in a way that it has been, because your mission is the first time away from home. It's like, you're, it's like your second family that you never really have had before. And just the love that came from that, just in that moment, it was like, I get it. Everybody acts in love because they know they are loved. And that's the reason why everybody does what they do. They're not afraid of disappointing anybody. They're not afraid of being in trouble. They're not afraid of punishment. They're not afraid of blessings. They're not afraid of lost blessings. They're not trying to earn blessings. They're not trying to be transactional. They just know they are loved. And because they know they are loved, they know they're safe. And because they know they're safe and in that protected in that, they know that no matter what happens, he has their back and he's going to be there to protect him and to be there for him. I get it. We act this way because we know we're loved. Hmm. Right? And it's like... I love where that goes. Right? And so in the same way, there are missionaries who were absolutely legalistic. And you're right. They had the same actions. It was the same actions. It was the same basic action from the outsider's perspective. You couldn't see the tell the difference between a missionary who was trying to do things because it was the law, the law, the law, and they were being obedient versus missionaries who were so wrapped up in this love thing that they just, they just existed in it. 
And there was a difference, though. Does this call to mind this second Nephi scripture at all for you? The one that uh, it's the one where Nephi says, we keep the law of Moses and look forward with steadfastness unto Christ until the law shall be fulfilled. But then the next verse, he says, the law hath become dead unto us and we are made alive in Christ because of our faith. Yet we keep the law because of the commandments. It's almost like, yeah, we know the laws there. It's dead to us inside in terms of motivation. It's not the thing that moves us. We keep it. But it's not the thing that moves us. The thing that moves us is our faith in Christ. So that, that to me, is the difference of intention that's expressed, kind of this, a similar situation in, in, in my estimation. Yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities there. I think there's a lot of, uh, I think you could pull that conversation that Nephi's having into that, into that really well, yeah. Well, there's, this leads us right into where we want to take this discussion. So there are motives to the things that we do. And if there's a motive to loving kindness, those can, those can be various. Like there's a lot of things that can inform whether we go out and act in loving kindness towards another. It may be that we want to please someone else just out of a sincerity and a desire to please them or make them happy. And that's great. There is the thing that you talked about, which is kind of the transactional ROI of doing the things, right? If you do this, then you get this blessing back. So there may be a sense of, hey, if I don't do this, there are no blessings, right? Um, And so you could call that selfish or you could just call that informed. You could just say, if I don't do this, then I'm not going to get this and neither will they. And then there's, there's the whole thing of conflict avoidance or punishment avoidance where it's like, if I don't do that, well, then there's a punishment and I'd rather avoid that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, so that those are some of the motives. And I'm, I'm reminded of just last Sunday, my daughter, uh, Sarah spoke in church and she pointed to this same, this same idea at the end of Mo, uh, King Benjamin's speech to his people in Mosiah he desires to know how his message was received. And the people, apparently after this you know, survey is sent out or whatever amongst the people, they all agree and, and shout in one voice that, uh, that you know, our hearts have been changed. We've had this mighty change of heart, and we, we no longer desire to do evil but to do good continually. And so I want to point to that as, as somewhat what we've been talking about, the difference between a heart that has changed and is acting out of a transformational uh, experience versus someone who is duty-bound to the rules and the law because there's the transactional ROI involved or the conflict avoidance or punishment avoidance. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, you know, I like the, you know, this transactional ROI. Um, it's hard for me to be able to try to, I'm coming to a place right now where it's like, I don't want to try to define other people's experiences, but at least I can try to give my own. But in my own life, when I've lived in that transactional way, um, the way that I thought if, if I just keep these, this particular commandment and this particular commandment, this particular commandment, then I expect God to be able to, and we use the scripture in DNC, right? He's like, I, the Lord of God am bound when you do what I say, but if you don't do what I say, you have no, no promise. As if this, <laughs> I love the way that we do this and it happens so much. I've seen so many missionaries do it. Um, I've seen this happen so much in church where it's like, if you keep these commandments, you can expect God to be able to bless you. <laughs> and I cannot tell you how bad that kind of thinking is <laughs> because it sets us up so much for failure. Um, 
because there are so many moments when we feel we've poured all of our lives into these things and we can't possibly be doing more. And yet there's nothing there. We don't feel there's anything equal to the sacrifice we're making. And I've spent years where it's like, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. Now, here's the here's where this kind of thinking process also will dive us off a cliff is because there are only so many hours in a day. There's only so much that we can do. And the fact is, is that with everything that comes at us from a high demand religion, such as we have, there is literally always something more than we can do. Like (laughs) at every single given time in our day, we could, we could never sleep and we would never, and and we could just devote ourselves a hundred percent of the time to just things from the church, doing our family history, reading our scriptures, singing songs, praying, whatever. You can add whatever you want to go into there, working on your church calling, whatever. Whatever you want to add into that, there is there are not enough hours of the day if you devoted a hundred percent of your time. So the fact is, is that unless you're going to do that, there's always going to be something left out. The same idea, Shiloh, comes from uh, when we hear that that scripture. It is after all that we can do that grace kicks in, right? I mean, I've said this on prior episodes. Literally, no one in the world does all that they can do because <laughs> you otherwise you would have zero, literally zero, none enjoyment uh, of personal recreation or anything like that. Because if you have any of that, there's always something more that you could be doing. So this whole idea just leads to a toxic burnout culture. Totally, totally. And and I've talked to so many people who've hit that wall and it's it's really, really, really hard to come back from that because the fruit there is just not good stuff. Now... We've got to be careful here because at the same time, just like I said with the missionaries, you if you look at the missionary who's just doing things duty-bound by the law and expecting the blessings versus the missionary who's acting by love, the actions are the same. Now, here's the deal is that if I go out to work out and I, and I have a, regi- you know, a regimen, whether or not I go into work out with love or I just go to work out because I'm working out, there's going to be certain results that I have regardless, right? And But the thing is, is that gospel living and blessings and those kinds of things don't work that kind of way. That's not the kind of way this is. But in another way, someone can come back and say, well, you know, if you go out and you start sinning all the time and just living a life of drugs and sinning and everything, you know, you're going to have certain consequences that obviously if you were just kept the law, you would have had, you wouldn't have had those consequences. This is where the conversation gets mired and we start getting down into the weeds. You know, Brian Brian McLaren talked about this in his book, his recent book, and I, I can't remember the title offhand, but he talks about a, a, a faith stage model that includes uh, complexity and perplexity. Those are kind of the second and third stages of his four-stage model. Well, complexity really comes from, you know, us doing the things that we're expecting to get blessings from and the blessings don't come. Or vice versa, we're not doing things or we see other people not doing the things and yet they're blessed somehow. And it's like, well, wait a sec. What about that scripture that says, I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say? I'm doing what you say and, you know, I don't feel like you're giving back to me what I expect to get back. And so that's that. It's a perfection trap and it's absolute burnout when we start because we can't put this stuff on God and say, well, he's the one that's not living up to his end of the bargain. Because that would, that would defeat the, the idea of God being a perfect human, a perfect being, right? That that would totally defeat that idea, and so we have to put it back on ourselves and, and say we're not 
doing enough, or we're not doing it the right way, or we're not understanding God, or whatever. And it just leads to this psychosis almost. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of the times our, I want to use the word theology, but I know that uh, there's a lot of Latter-day Saints who like to revel in the fact that we don't have a theology, a formal theology. But anyway, Mormon thinking anyway, has this idea that that the gospel living brings happiness and sin brings misery and sadness. And I think we falsely equate that so that any experience that we have that brings sadness or brings loss of expectation or brings sorrow or brings those kinds of emotions into our lives, we look around that we're doing something wrong. And only if we're happy can we be doing something right. And I think this is a false model. And I think it falls into exactly what you're talking about there. Because when we start to recognize that this life, that the sorrow is good, that sadness is good, that some of those, uh, I, I've experienced severe anxiety in my life and moments of depression. And I know people who've experienced far deeper depression than I have and far and far lasting more depression than I have, where they, they seek professional professional help, right? And there's these moments when we do need to address these kinds of clinical issues, but in our lives, when we're dealing with just sorrow and sadness, it's not always that we did something wrong. You know, that idea of doing something wrong is a construct that a lot of times we create and we, we have these expectations for. But when I started to recognize and realize that I could just sit there with the sadness and experience the sadness and be present with the sadness that I didn't have to expect myself to be happy. That, it's like, because when I'm sad, it's like, what can I do to not be sad? And so then I start to try to expect myself to do something to pull me out of the sadness. But when I just sat in the sadness and I, and I became aware and present with it, it wasn't that I was just going to be sad because I was always going to be sad, but just being present with that experience and that emotion it passes. And the same thing with happiness. When I experience happiness, I sit there in the presentness of that happiness and, and I allow that to happen. And I start to realize that a lot of these emotions and a lot of these experiences that I'm having are not tied in a transactional way to the actions that I associated with them before in a, in a false expectation and causal relationship. And so that transactional ROI that you're talking about, th that has largely been a false narrative in my life that we can call it, you know, you talked about repentance We to repent of. I learned to see God differently. And I realized that those moments of happiness and sadness, God was there with me in both of them. And, and I, and God was there experiencing it with me. And so I just, I learned to be at the, with the sadness. I didn't have an expectation that it should have been otherwise. And I didn't have the expectation and the happiness of thinking I deserve this because I was doing the right thing. But all of a sudden these experiences were happening because I had these moments and these breakthroughs with God where I was able to find a new presence and a new purpose and experience with God that usually he came when I wasn't expecting it. And as, as I said earlier, he disrupted my life. And then that was the ball that got everything rolling kind of mentally for me and emotionally to being able to recognize these things. Well, we started out talking a little bit about Buddhism and one of the fundamental tenets of Buddhism and, and really of the Eastern tradition in general is this, this relationship with attachment. And it's most of the neurosis I think that uh, we're afflicted with comes from various attachment issues. We're attached to outcomes, um, and when they don't happen the way we expect them to, we start to obsess about the whys. 
um, or or the hows, even even more so probably the hows. Like why did why is this happening to me, and how did this happen to me, and you know what did I do to cause it, or what did I not do to cause it, and if we just release the attachment to what the present circumstance is and the whys and hows of experiencing it and just sit with it instead, all of a sudden we're not convicted. It's like, oh, I didn't necessarily do anything to cause this. It's just, it just is. And, and so what this fundamental tenet of, of these Eastern traditions of letting go of attachment is such an important concept for us to be able to deal with uh, adversity and the things that are challenging us. And really it goes just, it, it's just as true for the negatives added as it is for the positives. When, when we experience, you know, goodness and, and happiness and all that stuff, as you said before, we have to realize that there's an impermanence to all of these feelings, the good and the bad. And we ought not to attribute anything necessarily we did to that outcome, because then as we strive to repeat that same circumstance and it doesn't happen, well, then we just cascade more neurosis on, on ourselves, you know? And, and so rather than, rather than get caught, all caught up in and obsessed with outcomes, if we just, if we just experience those things and take them for what they are, we, we can actually move forward in a, in a more healthy way. Yeah, I, I know Christopher has probably brought this up before because he's the one who introduced me to it. I think Alan Watts actually talked about it, but it's the the Chinese proverb of the farmer and, and the maybe. I, I, he's probably brought yeah. that story up before. Yeah, you guys actually, I think you guys talked about that the last time that you were on the show with Christopher when I was out of town. Yeah, I did. Uh, and, you, and, I think you, and we recounted it several times. It's such a great story. <laughs> if you haven't heard it, go back a couple episodes and we'll probably go repeat back it and again. listen to it. <laughs> right. But yeah, but just, I think it applies here so well to that attachment yeah. that you're talking about because it, because in my life, I've, I've asked myself, like, what does that even mean, attachment to things? It's like, you know, if, if I lose this position, or if I lose that position, I'm like, well, whatever, you know, it, it was nice. It was there. It's gone. But I think at a deeper level, it's more than just things that is the attachment is more than just to our things. It's to the expectation that things are going to be in a certain particular way. And when we really double down on that, that kind of attachment has a lot deeper roots of consequence to our intellectual constructs, especially within Mormon theology, than I think we really give it credit for. Because we really do want to build ourselves structures of expectations where we we have built ourselves a, a cultural theology of expecting God to do certain things as based on our, our actions. We have a very consequence-based theology. And I think it's you that has actually said this in the past about um, what what a what kind of a God bends to the the will of our expectations. You know, it, it's almost like we're we're just dictating to God what He can and can't do based on this this maxim that when we do a certain thing, He's bound to do something else. You know, it's like right. That's kind of a it's kind of a weak deity. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's a God that runs away from our sin. It, it's, it's a God that, you know, abandons us when we need him the most. It's a God that, that only honors us and will be there for us when we've done exactly what he says. And it, it's funny. We say, we, we say that we need obedience and that obedience brings blessings. But my own personal experience is, and I've said this a, a hundred times and I'll keep on saying it a hundred times, is that I learned of the love of God when I didn't deserve it. 
there was nothing in my life that I had going on for me when I first experienced the grace and love of God. And it's in that moment of of recognizing that this had nothing to do with you, with, with me, right? That that grace, that love, that compassion, that divine mercy had nothing to do with my side of the equation. It was but didn't all grace God. kick in after all that you could do? <laughs> right. It wasn't hey, like... hey. And, and our culture, bless our culture's heart. I mean, we have so many different apologists now coming out and trying to say, well, it's in spite of all that we can do. That's the real meaning of this. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not, that's a modern cultural adaptation about how we want to be able to spin that because of just how atrocious that construct really has been and how that admit and how that falls into society and shows up in society. We have to be able to now try to rework what that scripture says to mean something differently than what it has meant in the past. And so, yeah. Well, I want to I get back to something you said earlier about awareness and how important that is incorporating that into this process of, well, of loving kindness and anything else, right? Is when, you, when we start to attribute to our actions— um, certain recriminations from the past or expectations of the future. We're living in those two worlds, the past and the future. Recriminations in the past, expectations of the future. And we've, we've totally lost sight of that, that middle ground, our, our now. And what lives in the now is our awareness of what's happening in that moment without any kind of attachment. We're not attached to outcomes. We're not attached to you know, recriminating the past and, and the events of the past, determining for us what we're supposed to experience. We're just experiencing it. And awareness is a, is a huge part of, well, it is contemplation. That's the, that's the gist of contemplation is awareness. And so I think one of the best ways to incorporate um, this modality of loving kindness, both for ourselves and for those around us, is being in the now. And we do that effectively through meditation. So, uh, for instance, today, I made this, knowing that this was the show topic, I made this the topic of my meditation. I said, I'm, gonna, I'm going to focus on loving kindness, and I'm going to begin with myself. And it was, I'm not try, trying to constrain God or force God into some, you know, action-based uh, outcome, where if I, if I meditate hard enough and I say loving kindness hard enough that I'm going to actually feel God's love and kindness, I'm just going to go with my mantra. That's going to be the intent. And whatever happens, happens. And what I felt in, in those brief moments, maybe 15, 20 minutes of meditation, was an emanation of inner life, of an expanding of myself and my capacity. Um, I didn't have any great personal, you know, revelatory experience or anything. It was just a a soft expansion of my capacity. And I saw it visually behind my eyelids in, in one sense, because I, I saw these pulsating, uh, you know, and alternating with my inhalation and exhalation, pulsating and alternating you know, black and red sort of shadows that you see behind your eyelids as you're in your waking moments of meditation. And then I felt some tingling down in in my extremities. And it was just an interesting uh, sort of phenomenon. And I'm not necessarily attached to phenomenon even in meditation. Sometimes things happen, sometimes things don't. But in this particular case, my awareness was brought to the correlation between this mantra of loving kindness 
and this feeling of expansion and uh, expanding of my capacity to receive and offer loving kindness. And so I think meditation can be a great tool in the realization of our capacity for loving kindness. Yeah, meditation is such an untapped power in our lives that for as much as I know just how powerful it is, it still hasn't sunk in as like a daily activity for me. And it's it's so interesting, but um, interesting enough before even, uh, you know, when Christopher had asked the, this morning if I would, if I would uh, sit in for him, and before I even knew I'd be here today, uh, this morning I got up and I, and I had my own, my own meditation this morning. And, and for me this morning, it was all about just silence. And, and it, that's one of my favorite meditations is to go in and it, as, as a form of prayer to go in without words. And I, I take a kind of a marching order out of the Sermon on the Mount where, you know, when Jesus says that God already knows what you need before you even ask him. And so can I, I wanted to know what kind of prayer could it possibly be where I didn't bring my own ego into the conversation. And I was like, ah, how do I do that? <laughs> I don't know how to do that. And is it first off I was like, I don't know how to do that. And it was like, oh man, I'm, it was difficult. It was impossible. And the best way that it came about was just the meditation of silence. I don't even, I'm not even coming to God saying, Hey, I'm going to be silent. And so you're going to say what you're going to say, and I'm going to be there. And so there was no, there's no, it's literally setting every expectation down as to what this moment is going to be. And just being in an awareness that God already knows what I need. And, and just that presence of knowing God already knows what I'm going to need to come into that moment. And what becomes present is fascinating, but what I think is even more fascinating for myself personally is what doesn't become present. What is, what is lacking and what becomes silent that's usually in the chatter of my mind. And, and it's a very interesting meditation and, and just the power of that. So as you talked about this morning, you had, you had the thought, you knew that this was going to be what you're going to do. And so coming into that moment of kindness, these are powerful things in our lives. These are powerful moments that we can take three or four or five minutes um, and just go over and take a few deep breaths. Just focus on breathing. Breathe in deeply, exhale, and either have a word, a mantra, or do it in silence. These really are powerful moments if we let these be in our lives. Because I I found myself today, because I ended up writing a few words down afterwards, Today, I've actually found myself going back to that a few times today and the things that became present for me in that, and they've colored my day today. In fact, I, I didn't know if I was going to have time to record this today. And so when Christopher even asked me, he's like, I was like, uh, do I have time? Do I have time? And that mo- what, I, what I got in that moment came and is like, of course I have time. I have all the time I need to take. And it allowed this experience that I'm having right now to even happen. So yeah, these are powerful things we can really utilize. Well, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I don't want to speak with myself. Uh, I don't think I could do an hour by myself. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about some of the, the overlaps with some some understandings and some terms that within our theology we are familiar with. And I want to start with Zion and this idea of being of one heart and one mind. You know, as as I kind of recounted my experience in my own meditation this morning— the goal of that really is is to have communion 
with God, to experience what God wants me to experience, to be of one heart and of one mind with my creator, with the infinite, with the divine, and and doing doing the work of going into that quiet inner closet, my own heart, my own interior, is is about the only way that I've had powerful experiences with the divine. And so I want to I kind of want to highlight this idea of being of one heart as as something different than just, hey, we're all trying to accomplish the same thing. We're building this communal society or whatever. What does the concept of being of one heart bring to mind for you, call, call to mind for you, show? You know, if you would have asked me this five years ago, I would have had a completely different answer. And hopefully I'll have a completely, answer, a completely different answer in another five years. But what that is for me now... First off, what it would have meant for me five years ago is that we all have shared the same belief, the same trajectory. Um, what I loved about the the having spent so many years, over a decade, maybe even a decade and a half in politics, trying to recruit people to my political philosophy <laughs> and trying to get everybody on the same board, put more people on my side of the equation than on the other side of the equation. My team versus their team. Exactly. What I found so refreshing about nonviolence was it was so radically individualistic that I can commit to non, a nonviolent life and I don't have to care if my neighbor has a tank on one side, if my other neighbor has a gun stockpiled, or if I live in a complete a neighborhood where there's no gun anywhere. Like, I don't have to be concerned with anything. I'm just concerned with my own actions. As long as you're not attached to outcomes. Right, right, because that's a big part of it. That was that was a huge part of it because nonviolence really is one of those things that you cannot go out and say because with nonviolence you can't force an outcome. Like if if I were to pick up a gun, I I have the thought that I can force an outcome or I could at least force a a, a hopeful outcome. With nonviolence, there's a powerlessness there of what that's going to be, and so they look for different ways of of asserting power and creating power of, of persuasion. But what that's even brought me to more recently is this idea, you know, Richard Rohr said it, and it's had a heavy impact on me for the last several years, in that unity is not conformity. It's not everybody believing the same thing, looking in the same direction, marching the same beat, and and doing everything in that same regimen. But he says, unity rather is diversity that's held together by love. And I've thought about that a lot diversity that's held together by love. And I think this comes back to our earlier statements, uh, is that when we truly love our neighbor as much as ourselves and we give up the expectation when we lose the attachment, like what you said, I no longer have to be able to be concerned. My neighbor can be a socialist and want government, you know, the governments to be able to have social programs. My neighbor can be a, a fascist. It could be, uh, a, a, a QAnon believer. I can have a conspiracy verse. I can have an atheist. It doesn't matter who's around me. I've given up the attachment to it. And I found that the more that I, I lose that attachment to my expectations as to how things should be. And I simply focus on the love of God in myself without having the expectation of the result. Then it, it's, it creates a sense of meekness and a form of meekness where I, this is interesting because in the Old Testament, it says that, and Mos, that Moses wrote down that Moses was the most meek man on the earth. And I always laughed about that. It was like the most meek and the most humble, right? And it's like, how can you possibly say you're that the author? Yourself? You're the most, <laughs> 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 you're 
you're the most meek and humble. It's like things you cannot say about yourself. You are meek. But in, in the context of defining meekness, in, in the context of the Beatitudes, that you've, you've emptied yourself from the attachments of the world, you've mourned the loss of that, and now you stand in this place of emptiness where you, because you've lost the attachment to everything, now you, you can belong everywhere. It's like you're a universal attachment. You can, you can go anywhere, be with anyone. You're like a chameleon that can be there with everything. And, and in that kind of, and so that's what I mean by meekness. When I come into that state of awareness, I, I define that state of awareness for myself as meekness. That, that we can come into those moments and to be there with anyone. And that's how I've actually begun to understand the whole Mormon construct of the degrees of glory about how like the celestial kingdom can visit the other degrees of glory, but the other degrees of glory can't visit the, the, the higher degrees. I no longer see that in terms of a metaphysical distinction that there are actually places that you visit, but more of a states of awareness that those who, the, the, the celestial state of awareness is, is a, such a form of detachment that they're able to sit with anyone having any identity, having any belief system, having anything, and just be there with them. But the fact is, is it doesn't work the other way around. The more entrenched your identity is, where you've dug in your hills and drawn a line, you cannot empathize with the other person on the other side of that line that you've dug in and you've, you've made. And so the more that you erase that line between you and the, your fellow man, you, you detach from those identities that, just, that pitch you against the other person. And you become more meek in allowing yourself to be there. That, for me, is that unity of Zion. That's the one heart. That's the, that's the diversity held together by love. That even in a pluralistic society where everyone believes something different, everyone has different, completely different ways of being, I, we can still have a Zion society right now in a radically pluralistic, divergent society simply because of the principle and the, and the, and the existence of love. So I, I don't necessarily want to get into any kind of philosophical debate, and you've dealt with this kind of question before being in your position with, you know, Latter-day, uh, the, the nonviolence group that we're, that we're together in, uh, peace studies. But, you know, this non-attachment, why the Buddhists and others felt like it was such a necessary thing is because even something as what we deem important as the family relationship if you're attached to that, it's difficult to be fully nonviolent because then you're like, okay, well, I can't be attached to my family and nonviolent because if that robber, you know, thief, murderer, rapist guy comes into my house and threatens my wife and kids, if I say that I'm not attached to them, I'm going to get a lot of pushback from wife and children. But if I am attached to them, it's difficult for me to exercise true nonviolent, you know. And so I know you've run into that a lot. And, and, I just want to, I guess, put, bring that up as that's a complexity. Uh, not everything's simple. And there are ways, as you mentioned earlier, of, of trying to find power in peace and power in love. And unless we're exercising all those, we really shouldn't put all of the burden on this non-attachment principle, right? I mean, uh, I, I had a discussion with my neighbor about this uh, nonviolence and, and, and peace and in, in the face of a, a really screwed up world. And he's like, well, what if your wife and children and da, 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 da. And I'm like, well, if I haven't put an alarm system on my house or taken just basic precautions, or maybe I get a, you know, a guard dog or something like that. But if I haven't done those things, and then I put all of the burden for nonviolence on this idea of, of non-attachment, well, it's going to be difficult for me to reconcile that stuff when the day comes, if it does, where that happens, where someone breaks into my house. And, you know, there are ways... 
And then, of course, there's also, you know, different ways of negotiating uh, peace and appealing to the better angels of, of people who might otherwise threaten us and whatnot. There's all kinds of ways that we can talk about and explore that stuff. But non-attachment is, is at the base of that, and that's difficult. It's not something that's easy. You're right. There is a, it is a complicated and a complex conversation, you know, specifically, and this isn't a conversation about nonviolence, but it just goes to show that there, there is a complete system of thought within the nonviolence theory uh, that's called, one of them is called the doctrine of interposition about how to be able to protect innocent parties from violence nonviolently. And the thing is, is we just don't talk about those things, those, those kinds of ways of being and of talking. And so, you know, we can detach while also still protecting. I, I saw a video of a man on a subway train and there was two, two guys that were getting ready to really go fisticuffs one with another. They were screaming at each <laughs> other and whatnot. And this guy very nonchalantly, he's got his headphones on, he's eating a bag of chips and he sits up, he stands up out of his seat on the, on the subway and he just goes and stands right between them looking like you know perpendicular to them as they sit there and fight on either ear right he's got his headphones on he's not listening to him he just he knew what was going on but he's looking perpendicular straight ahead and he just keeps eating his chips and every time they try to get around him he moves forward or back just a little bit and he's really obnoxious <laughs> but eventually the two parties they're looking at him eating chips in the middle of them and they kind of realize the absurdity of the situation <laughs> And they're like, all right, this is stupid, you know, and they just go their opposite way. But that's interposition, right? That's exactly what interposition is. Uh, You know, it's, it's this idea that psychologically we have this mechanism in our brain that we cannot commit violence upon another human being unless we find a way to devalue their humanity. We do that. We do that through language. We call them names that other than that devalue their humanity, other than something that's a human being, you know, we can call them a jerk or whatever. Um, Something has to happen to commit violence. And so when you introduce, when two parties are about ready to fight, it means that they've devalued the humanity of the other person in their eyes. And just by introducing your own humanity into the mix uh, alleviates that, 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 uh, contention. And it's a very powerful tool. Yeah, there's there's dozens of examples exactly like that. I've I've heard that story before. I love I love uh, Chipman. Look up the video. It's <laughs> awesome. I, I want to draw out from that that uh, example a way that loving kindness can kind of can kind of emanate from us. All right. So call awareness right now. If you're listening to this, think of a person that you know without question. And I hope everyone has one of these people. But someone that you know who without question loves you. And just, I want you to consider that person and I want you to consider their feelings for you and just rest on that. And let's just take five seconds and I want you to consider that and think about and feel the feelings that come from that. Now, maybe we didn't allow enough time there, but what are the feelings that are beginning to swell up within you as you call to mind this person who you know without question loves you? And now take that feeling and ask yourself the question, can I become the source of similar feelings in someone else? And really for me, that is the manifestation of what loving God and God loving us and us loving us does for us when we go to 
exercise loving kindness in the world. You know, it's said in the New Testament, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is within. And the the contrast to that is that in, in Dante's Inferno, he says the gates of hell open from the inside. And I think both are true. The mind and the heart is the location of both of these, heaven and hell. And so accessing that mind, that heart, that spirit, noticing what's inside, and incorporating these sorts of feelings that you know exist. If there is someone that loves you and you can seek to feel that love right now, how would that move you to then show others the love that you felt? And I think that's kind of powerful. That, that's, a, that's kind of a contemplative activity I wanted to go through. And another way to look at it, too, would be if you don't have necessarily that person who you know unquestionably and unconditionally loves you, imagine it. Imagine there's a person out there who no matter what you've done or did or will do has unconditional love and concern for you and wants nothing but the best for you. Imagine that person. Take the time to sit with that for a minute or two. Now, feeling that kind of feeling and the intention that goes into that unconditional love, what does that do within you? Does it, does it cause within you a swelling of your own capacity to exercise love and kindness towards others? Shiloh, what comes to mind when, you had the, when I was going through those, those questions, those prompts? You know, I've shared this before, but it's been a year or two, maybe even three years. My wife asked me a question once from a meditation and something she was listening to. I don't know if she, if she had made it herself or she'd thought about it herself or she'd heard it somewhere. But she asked me, she said, what would you have done differently in your life? If you knew, you truly knew, you had always already been loved. And I sat with that for a really long time. I still sit with that um, from time to time. Because as, as you were saying that, and as, as I have a few people in mind that, uh, that represent that in my life, you know, it, it also becomes aware that sometimes there's moments when things happen and <laughs> you're like, hey, I, and maybe someone is going to disappoint you or let you down, or maybe, maybe, someone isn't, maybe someone doesn't have someone like that in their lives. But just the awareness of what would you have done differently, because it it brings in that even if you didn't have someone, I recognize that the dumbest mistakes I've made, the things I deem mistakes anyway, were usually in moments when I didn't have any any inner feeling that I was truly loved, that unconditional love that no matter what I did, I wasn't loved. And I started, I've started to look back on my life in the last several years, recognizing how many actions I've had to try to make up the void that I didn't feel completely loved. And so the recognition of that question, what would you do differently if you knew you truly knew you had always already been loved and that God is that thing. And so, yeah, that's what came to mind for me. I love the tradition in Christianity going back thousands of years now that that God is the husband to the widows and that he's the father to the orphans and the, um, you know, the fatherless, uh, the motherless. I, I love that idea because it fills in the blank. I, I sincerely hope that everyone out there has someone they know and they can call to mind who has unconditional love for them. 
because to feel that feeling is one of the great joys of life and to have the confidence that that instills in you that that love gives you like i know for certain that my parents have unconditional love for me and you know nothing i could do would distance me from that love that they have for me i know that my wife and my children feel that way at least i hope so you know and the feelings that that gives me inside to have the the confidence of their love it it makes me want other people to feel that and and essentially that is a reflection of the two great commandments to love god and and love your neighbor as yourself all of that stuff is contained in those two great commandments and so i guess what i would leave you the listener and even myself with as as a kind of a departing thought here is to draw your attention to create awareness and space for the feeling of love and as as you do so i think that your own capacity for loving others will will increase shiloh is there anything you wanted to close with no i like that well i've certainly enjoyed having you on again i love where our conversations go shiloh and i look forward to the next time and for our listeners i just want to plant this little seed in your in your mind if there's something that we've talked about that has that has helped you and you think it might be a message for someone that you know please share this we would love for these ideas to get out to more people. And of course, we want to hear from you as well. So feel free to leave comments on our YouTube channel on Latter-day Peace Studies and Latter-day Contemplation. Leave, uh, leave comments on the podcast sources, whether it's Apple, Spotify, wherever. Let us know how we can improve. And if you have ideas for future shows, we'd love to hear those as well. So we really appreciate you coming along the ride for uh, with us. And we look forward to uh, the next episode and sharing that with you. So Shiloh, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Riley Risto. I'm Shiloh Logan. Have a great week. <laughs>